Very big day today, Christian. Oh, boy. Very big day. This is the second time we've done it because the first time it didn't work. I'm on pins and needles and pins. <laughs> we have audio production. We gotta just dub like one of us deadpanning pod. It's <laughs> a good idea. Say who? Say pod. <laughs> I also thought we could come out of it and say something like, "Hello, dog fans." Ooh, yeah, that'd be. Our host is too. Christian Capel, owner and operator of OnMontLake.com, which is the best and independentist. Spot for Washington football news, a veteran scribe, a learned gentleman, and surprising hip-hop enthusiast. You can subscribe to his work at onmontlake.com. Ooh, that, I like that. I got to get that. We're, we're going we're gonna to cut that up and like I'm going to send that to people as an audio clip at the top of all my <laughs> newsletters from now on. <laughs> I wouldn't do that. I also came up with a little tagline when we tell people to rate and review us, which you're supposed to do on every podcast. We want five stars like Nick Saban. If you leave us reviews, don't be hating. <laughs> that's that's pretty good. Um, that means no four-star reviews either. That's exactly right. If you're going to leave stars, leave five. Yeah. No, uh, uh, we don't want any, you know, we're not interested in this, like, top 300. You know, let's let's develop that rating up. We need, we need the, the, the dudes. So one of the things... As I've sort of moved in this, made this pivot in my career, I'm now more involved with other people who write books. And there's a whole community, like there's a whole discussion about Goodreads. Are, are you familiar with the website? I am, yeah. So it's where you go and rate books that you've, you've read. And it's a referral mechanism, essentially. And authors understandably care a great deal about this. <laughs> there's a fair amount of hostility, like the same sort of thing. If you're like, don't be leaving four stars. Is the sort of the same thing? People think Goodreads reviewers are too stringent, like a little bit too tough. Like, why would you give my book a crappy review? Do you know how hard it is to write a book? It's very funny to me. I like. Um, I don't know if you listen to Jeff Perlman's podcast. I do. Or, I I enjoy. He brings up from time to time because he's written a bunch of books. Like the the negative reviews that are like critical of the the books, like physical form or like this <laughs> the spine the spine wasn't strong enough or one of the one of the pages was folded or i didn't like the the font you know the font type is too small or and it's like those are you know you, you buy a product like you want it to you want it to be top quality like those are legitimate concern like to be annoyed about or whatever but not for the author page man like come on it's from everyone that i've talked to who has written a book there are parts of that process that are so far outside their control and that it's, but yet are actually important to the experience. Like it's a pretty, it's a fairly crazy business. Yeah. I'm a, I don't know if I'll ever venture into that. You maybe don't think someday. so? You know, if this season goes well enough for, for Washington, maybe like, I feel like that's when you're a beat writer, I feel like that's like the, you're kind of at the whims of how successful the team you cover is when it comes to book options. Not that I would you know, want to like limit myself creatively or whatever, but 
it's interesting because there's certainly like that's the most concrete like business proposal, right? Like you write a book about a really incredible season that a team has and the fans of the team will probably buy it. That's why I have um, a, a book on my Ottoman right now written by Charlie Weiss. <laughs> but actually the most interesting sports books don't tend to be those. Um, and it's, I don't know. It's just, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating business. Perlman's, Perlman's books, like he wrote a Barry Bonds book that I think is one of the very best sports books that I've ever read. Um, and it, it basically, it came out at the same time as sort of the steroid documentation of mm-hmm. Bonds, um, which was, I think that was called Game of Shadows. Perlman's book is way more interesting because it explains the psychology of why he did that and who Bonds was as a person, which is, and a player, which is much more interesting than the, the logistics of proving that he, he pumped himself full of pharmaceuticals. Yeah. And that's like, that's the kind of writing that I would lean toward where you just, you've got a subject and you make a list and try to call 200, 300, 400 PM, whatever it is. I know he, he's always talking about how like that's kind of his, his style and his strategy as an author is to just talk to as many people as you can. And once you think you've got enough, like make one more call and one more call and one more call. So I think that would be, that'd be a fun way to write a book. And you did yeah. that, that type of book doesn't need to be about a season. Kind of can't be about a season, right? Like, no, you're yeah. usually looking at a broader topic than that. But then there are books about seasons that are really good. Like Season on the Brink is on Bobby Knight, which is fantastic by John Feinstein. There that was would also... have been the 2008 Husky season would have been a good like embed season. Oh, you know, God. is Do that because so? that's not Season on the Brink. That's like Season way beyond the brink. That season been... at the bottom of the cavern. <laughs> that had to be so depressing. Like that just had to be so horrifically depressing to to be there that season and watch that happen. It kind of it it kind of was, but it was in, it was really interesting too. I mean, I was a junior in college, uh huh, and so I was working for the student paper, and I'd covered the football team one year before that. So the season before, when they went four and nine, I think it was, they played thirteen yeah. games because they played at Hawaii. They had that weird game at Hawaii where it was like Hawaii's best team ever, and Timmy they probably Chang. probably should have beat them. And um, it was. There was a certain point where, like, yeah, as, as like sports writers, we always say you root for the story, right? Yeah. And like, obviously, I'm not rooting against any group of people or for any group of people to win or lose. But there's a point where they're like, oh, and seven, where you're like, hmm, most interesting if they went oh and twelve at this point, right? Like, oh and twelve is more interesting than three and nine, than two and ten, than one and eleven, even. So there's a part of you that's like, it's not that I want them to lose it's not that i ever like look at a group of 18 to 22 year old college football players and think gosh i hope these guys lose every game or win every game but in the back of your mind like that 0 and 12 possibility is there and you're like wouldn't it be kind of like interesting to see that right like wouldn't it be just from a journalistic like neutral observer standpoint wouldn't wouldn't there be something sort of fascinating about being around and watching that happen now it is kind of miserable at the same time because you're talking to the same people over yes. and over again. And in college football, especially like they put the same guys out in front of the media like week after week to, to answer for, in this case, you know, another loss and another loss and another loss. So it gets to a point where like 
you're just asked, so I mean, you got lost again, huh? Like what lost by gave up 50 points again, huh? Like that's, do you think you can do better next week? Well, like we, we all kind of know probably not, but you still got to add. And so there's this, this like miserable, like cycle to it where you feel bad, you know, and at the time I'm, I'm these guys peer, like age wise, at least Mm -hmm. like we're both students at the same school. And so if it were me now, I probably would like have, I'd probably be a little more like empathetic or like, you know, I'm older than them and I've lived a little more. And so I'd probably would look at that more now as like, oh, like these, these poor guys who are going through this where at the time, like you're their same age. So you don't really get that. It's just like, oh, like they're a team and they're losing and it is what it is, you know? So it was, it was not a miserable experience covering it only at at times it kind of was. Um, but as somebody like learning the profession and watching kind of how the beat guys handled things and the people on the beat, I should say, handled things. Um, it, it was, it was probably more interesting than miserable, at least from, from my perspective. I don't mean to downplay like what, what that did to the psyche of, of people listening. I know that was like a, Oh, it's brutal. Not to the psyche of people listening. To me, it was horrible. I stopped being able to watch it on TV. I started listening to the games and doing home improvement. So we owned a house in West Seattle. We still have the house in West Seattle. And we remodeled, I I would say, fully half of it. Like, it was way too much. Like, in in fact, we have a motto now. We don't remodel. Um, We'll just buy something else. I won't ever do that again. Hmm. But I can remember making the decision that I am going to actually put the anger slash energy that I'm getting from this to, to use in finishing up these different. So I'm like cutting trim, using a miter saw painting. I'm doing, I'm, I'm, I didn't, I stopped watching games entirely. And then in the midst of the apple cup, I stopped listening to the game. Like I went and got into my car and drove off before that game was over because I knew what was going to happen. And I listened to it in the car, but like I was like, I, I, I it was when Karstetter made the catch, mm-hmm. right? Like, isn't yeah. it, is there a big catch that Karstetter makes before they from, force from Kevin Lapina? As soon as that happens, I knew that they were losing. Like, I knew that it was just like, it's, it's done. Um, and I was that, that's as mad as I've ever been at a sporting event. Like, that's as, as angry as I've ever been because I really do like you don't usually get mad, especially at a college team. Like you might get frustrated at a call or a circumstance or something, but you're not like, like I was, I was angry at Tyrone Willingham. <laughs> like I'm still mad at Tyrone Willingham. I think uh, it's, if we're being honest, I think it's okay to be angry at the already fired head coach who punts on fourth and three from his opponent's 39 yard line. When that opponent is quite possibly the least talented team in the history of the Power Five, which God. I think that team at that that time you could again, as I've pointed out all the time, Washington was zero and ten going into that game and favored by a touchdown. That just tells you what what the, the caliber of opponent they were facing. Just um, awful. I was on the sidelines for the I think for the Karstetter catch and then the two overtimes. Ugh. Um, I remember badly having to pee. <laughs> and just kind of thinking like hmm like these teams are both really bad i don't know are we gonna get any points here like <laughs> this could go a while this could go a ways but uh it ended on the the nico grasso game winner which produced the infamous photo of uh 
I think it was Nate Williams, Husky safety Nate Williams, laying face down on the turf while uh, while everybody's celebrating in the background. Great, great sports photo. Um, yeah, I'm that still was bad, uh, man. That I'm game was mad. like a that game was like a fever dream, kind of because you know it was billed as the Crapple Cup. It's one mm-hmm. in ten against zero oh and ten, and by far the worst these two teams have ever been together at the same time. But so, and you, so you kind of feel like there's no way to live up to the hype or live down to the hype, I guess. <laughs> but it did. Where it's like, oh, like we're expecting this like three nothing, you know, slugfest, and it kind of was like that. Like yeah. Washington, I think, was up ten nothing early, and it was tied ten to ten, and yeah, they they punted from, <laughs> punted from the thirty nine yard line on fourth and three. You're like, imagine being a head coach in that position. You've literally already lost your job. You've been fired for weeks publicly. You're yes. just playing out the string. You literally have nothing to lose except this game to one of the worst teams in major college football history. Why wouldn't you go for it on fourth and three? Because, and this is this is where I think I understand. You think I think he wanted I, them to lose? What's that? No, no. I don't think he wanted them to lose. I think what he wanted to do was to show. I think that entire season was about showing that the worst possible sort of outcome was not going to change how Tyrone Willingham operate. Like really? I, I really think that his entire MO was I am going to remain the exact same person no matter what happens. And because he would punt on fourth and three if his team was eight and oh and in contention for a Rose Bowl berth, he's gonna punt on fourth and three if your team is 0 and ten and playing a game to avoid historic and ignominious historic achievement of going winless and throughout that he was never going to show even a hint of emotion to the point where bob condota and one of the asked him to react to whatever one of the you gave up 400 yards rushing and that's never happened in the history of the school (laughs) tyrone looks at him and goes what do you want me to do about it, Bob? <laughs> Jump up and down? Bob says, I don't care what you do. No, I don't care what you do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's what I think. I, I think that was Tyrone's entire... And I mean, I think, I, I think he was very, very like specific about like he, that wasn't... It wasn't going to change anything about him, which made it more frustrating for a fan because that season changed a lot about me. <laughs> yeah, Dan- season changed me. Danny won't even do home renovations anymore. Yeah, I quit. I was like, I'm never doing that again. Yeah, have you? Ever- I think you're exactly right. Like, I'm sure that is. That's exactly what it was. It's like, hey, no, it does. The process doesn't change. The decision making doesn't change. It's fourth and three. I think that the right thing to do is punt. I don't care that we're zero and ten. I don't care that a middle school team could get three yards against these guys. We're punting. That's what's insane, though, because if you apply that rationale, like that rationale, it's so freaking stupid to to say that, like, I'm not going to do anything different when this program is 0-10. I've already been publicly fired. And so, like, nope, I'm just going to keep getting up and going through. Like, that's psychopath stuff, right? Like, at some point, you're like, I've got to try something else. Like, at some point, at some point, like, perseverance like gives way to just abject stupidity or just being so, so painfully stubborn. Um, yeah, I, I, this is, isn't it funny how we always come back to like that game and that, 
that season. And in 2021 is going to be very similar. I think like I wrote a, I wrote a story. A few of us did um, like in my first year at the athletic, I think it was Jason Jenks had the idea to write like for the Seahawks, Huskies, Mariners, Sounders, the worst game in their history. Oh, right about like the were the worst loss ever. Yeah. Worst game ever. And I wrote about the 2008 Apple cup and there were some people who commented and were like, Oh my God, like why would you ever write about that team and that game again? And you know, people refer to Tyrone Willingham as, you know, he who shall not be named and yeah, all this stuff. But like the numbers don't lie. People, people want to read about, like they want to pick at the scab. Oh and yeah. Want, for sure. I think that was one commenter who was like, no, like I'm the exact opposite. I want to pick at the scab. I want, he's like, I'd read a, you know, and there's been a book written about about that season and about Tyrone, but I've seen people say like, "Oh, I'd re- I'd read a whole book about like 2021 and what went wrong." And I think the people who want to bury that and never talk about it again, either one are lying, or two are like in the extreme extreme minority. Because I like most, I, I think most people, like, even like last year went the way it went, and the program's on this upward trajectory, and all these guys are coming back, and still we get questions all the time about. Jimmy Lake and what happened in 2021. So, well, it's an opportunity to learn something, right? Like there's when you have something that goes catastrophically wrong like that, anytime you have sort of a a clear failure, there's a moment after that where there's like this reckoning. And I noticed this first as a reporter covering the Sonics and the first two years I covered them, I covered them for a total of three seasons before switching to the Seahawks. The first two, they didn't make the playoffs. And in each of those years, kind of right after, it wasn't, it was never when they were officially eliminated. It would be like right around there when it became clear they weren't going to make the playoffs when sort of that last little death rattle had happened where okay if we get it together and go on a run we can now make it and then they suffered a bad loss and so it would be before they were mathematically eliminated but when everybody knew it was over Mm -hmm. there would be this moment of transparency and honesty where the coach would be willing to say and the gm would be willing to point out sort of the the bets or the hopes that they'd had that didn't pan out like there was an actual reckoning about what had gone wrong that was allowed you to kind of understand it. And in some cases it had been they'd been denying this thing the whole year and then it just became clear like it was Ronald Murray and Ray Allen really couldn't play together on the floor at the same time. Like that was really hard for them. The the two of them and R- Ronald was so good when it first and then there would be this sort of explanation of like yeah, we tried to get that to work and it just didn't. Um so it's, it's I, I, I think that principle to sort of terrible seasons, the worst season I covered for the Seahawks is the 2009, like the Jim Mora year. And Dirt you had bags. the same thing of as it became clear it wasn't going to happen, and then it got worse because Holmgren was going to come back, but he turned him down, and he goes, and then they decide to blow everything up. And there was this moment afterwards where it's like, yeah, we had to take stock of it and decided that we needed a a complete reset and here's why. And you had all of these, I'm hearing stories about how the GM who'd resigned in the middle of the year, then got the team 
to pay for a vacation because he was so burned out and is there getting their ass kicked in the final weeks. He's sending an email saying, like, the room that they got us here isn't quite that nice. Could you see if you could do something about getting, like, nicer accommodations? They're like, dude, have you seen what's happening to us here? Like, Andre Johnson has 200 yards receiving in the first half. Like, we're getting obliterated. No, we're not going to look at improving your room in Hawaii. No, we're not doing that. So, like, there would be all those. And, and they are fun because you do get this level of honesty or transparency that doesn't exist in other situations when you're just mediocre or just not quite good enough. Should we um, should we brighten the mood with some UW basketball talk? <laughs> and do you think that uh, Rick Pitino could have kept Keon Manyfield? Yeah. So... I don't have any hard feelings toward him. Like, even though he said he was coming back, like, I don't, I, I don't, I don't, players don't owe programs anything. And he's free to change his mind, especially, I mean, he's from Michigan, right? Um, if he ends up getting an opportunity um, at, at a, a program that's more successful or a place where he wants to go more, like, I just don't have, but that's not good. I mean, that's it's it's, it, it, it's not it's that was a guy that they thought they'd they'd retained and i mean i i i think it it's going to make it worse for next year like the only possible alternative is that he was told that maybe somebody they're going to get would potentially cut into his minutes so that changed his calculation there but there's so much but no that's that's not good but it's not surprising like i'm not What's your sales pitch as as the as the UW program right now? Like, what are you what are you what are you pitching players? Well, for someone like Manyfield, I think he definitely would get more shots at Washington next year than uh, than at a better program, probably. Right? I guess it's roster dependent. It's situational. You know, maybe maybe there's a another team out there that's. That, that needs another scorer, needs another shooter, needs another guard, and and is telling him, "Hey, you know, you could come here and get the same the same share of the, you know, controlling the ball and and getting shots up." But I mean, I don't know. Like if 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 you care about making the tournament and playing for the program, it's going to give you the best chance to do that. Like it's been proven, Washington's not that place. But um, I thought that just offensively and with what he already did as a as a true freshman this year and certainly in line to play even more next year. I, I kind of thought it was a good place for him to take a bunch of shots and score points. If, they, if I don't know if, if what his priority is, I'm not saying that should be, or, you know, that any player should put that number one or, or not just kind of seems like if you, you know, you want to be that guy and, and have that role, Washington wouldn't have been the worst place, you know? Yeah. We talked to Chris Francis from, from Cairo seven last week. And you brought that up that if if you're a player looking for an opportunity to score, like you would you would see that like you can step into a role and have a pretty immediate impact at Washington, and and I think that's true. I I think on the flip side of that there is the question of okay if if that's the role you're going to be in, how good is the team going to be? Mm-hmm. I I think there's a consideration of that too. I, I would also say that. And this would be especially for someone like Menifield, is is that the style of play that you want? Like if it looks like 
their hopes next year are going to be a more grinded out team, right? They're going to try to be big and and really funnel things through the post. I could also see a player saying like, that's not the most enjoyable style of basketball to play because I, I think there's a chance that that happens too. And honestly, that might be Washington's best approach is to try and do something completely different from the rest of, from what other teams in the conference are, are doing and sort of in the same way that Matt Rule first at Temple and then at Baylor was like, yeah, okay, we're going to have a blocking tight end and we're going to bring the fullback back and we're not going to spread it out at all. We're going to try and kick people's butt. Sort of saying like, no, we're going to feed the ball into the post and we're going to get some height and we're going to try to hammer people on the glass and we're going to grind it out and, and whittle the shot clock down every time. Uh, Washington was 166th in adjusted offensive efficiency per Ken Palm this year and 158th last year. So it it is kind of you know how, how do you want to look at it? Do you want to look at it as well? It was a great it was a great venue for Keon Brooks and Terrell Brown to kind of revitalize their careers and score a bunch of points or is it well it looks to me like it was one guy both of those years that yeah. they were relying on with no real plan offensively. Yeah. You don't look at those 166th and 158th in a league that, you know, I don't know, has a ton of great defensive teams, maybe a couple who are really committed to to that end of the floor. Um, you just didn't see them bring the ball up with, you know, running sets and, and with a clear idea <laughs> offensively of where they wanted to go with the ball. And other than, <laughs> hey, Keon Brooks should take a lot of shots and Terrell Brown Jr. last year should take a lot of shots. In the NBA, there would always be this feeling of like when you try to identify like a guy on a bad team and he's like, oh, he averaged 18 and 10. He's like, really? I mean, that's really productive player. But you're like, is he just getting that because there's nobody else on his team? And the, the phrase that coaches would have for it is like, somebody's got to score the points. And there is a certain level of that. Like there is a... There is a specific number of points that even the worst team is going to score. And and the the question of, hey, you've got somebody who could capable. It's why you can't take a scoring average as sort of an indication of skill level, right? Because it's so dependent on the circumstance that if you're the only scorer on a really bad team, you might get your numbers might look much better than the actual impact you had in terms of winning basketball. Yeah, um, and like I, I think you can trust that Keon Brooks is a really good player. He's a good player. You know, Kentucky wanted it, and he played at Kentucky. You know, he wasn't he wasn't one of these guys who like just he got there and uh, he, and this guy's not what we thought he was. And stick him at the end of the bench and you know push him out the door in a, in a couple of years. Like he was part of the rotation, so that was a nice ad, and I think that's still really important. You know, we're recording this on Tuesday, by the way. It'll publish on Thursday, so. I guess it's possible there could be a key on Brooks decision between now and then. You mentioned us talking to Chris Francis on Cairo. When we recorded that, uh, Cole Bajima and Keon Manyfield were, st- were still in the fold, and both of those guys have since entered the portal. So it's going to be uh, it's going to be another busy portal season for the basketball program. I think it, every year will be as long as Mike Hopkins is there. But uh, and then I should you know who knows right because he. he Manyfield is just in the portal or intends to enter the portal, one or the other. He, he's not he's not gone yet. He's not at another school yet. Who knows? Maybe they can uh maybe they can get Malik Futures on the phone and 
arrange something because that's always a factor in this too, right? Like that's what I mean. I don't mean to assume this of anybody, but like when I see somebody say that they're staying at a school, cause this has happened before it's happened with a couple of football players last year too. I think um, whenever I see someone like say they're staying at a school and then change their mind quickly, like you do kind of have to wonder, you know, whether did somebody come in and whisper, well, either that or like, does it, was it not what they wanted at their current school? And like, I, you know, are, are some guys going to enter the portal as, as leverage and not even like, Oh, I've got an offer on the table from another program, but just like, Hey, I, this program I'm at right now needs me more than any other program probably. So maybe, you know, why not, why not try to get, I think there was a, there was a, a football program or two where right after NIL was a thing that, that kind of seemed, you had a bunch of guys enter the portal and then decide to stay. And it was like, Hmm, you know, I wonder what the, what the financials were there. Well, there was flat out last season, wasn't there, with a Miami basketball player? Yeah. Like, like he had somebody that was coming out and saying flat out, like, he needs more compensation if he's going to, something to reflect his value if he's going to stay here, which is, I mean, it's certainly not what the architects were hoping for uh, when they, when the NCAA has begun phasing in or uh, um, uh, acquiescing to the legislative demand that, that NIL be, be allowed. The, the billionaire stood his ground on that one. <laughs> I saw that referenced in a, I think the Wall Street Journal did a big story on NIL recently, mm-hmm. and they mentioned they mentioned that that scenario. Um, I mean, Miami was like the focus of the story because they're going to the Final Four and yes, had this great team. Um, and they mentioned that player whose name I forget, but uh, they they mentioned that player and quoted him not directly but paraphrased, saying that like his agent had spoken out of turn and that he never actually intended to leave Miami. So who, of course not. Who the hell knows? <laughs> yeah, of course not. Miami is also where they have the twins on the women's basketball team who are TikTok stars. Yes. Mm-hmm. I believe that that was the subject of the first NCAA investigation of an NIL deal. Yeah. Um, a dinner, a dinner that they had with the billionaire, which I still don't understand what the problem was. Yeah, I I don't I don't have any yeah, I have no idea. Is it like did did they determine there was no like quid pro quo on that? I th- I think it was that it didn't meet the threshold because I don't even know how it works. Does anybody know how it works? Like you can't you can't promise NIL to a player based on him enrolling at a pro he or she enrolling at a program right like you can't make it a substitute salary the violation but- occurred because their head coach facilitated impermissible contact between the the twins and the billionaire <laughs> <laughs> wait a minute so so it's all cool as long as the coach isn't involved in it at all yeah literally yes literally yes and in some states well the the state the 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 NIL legislation at the state level is such a patchwork that you right. know it's it's all over the place like i know in some states i don't think I, I think that the law says that the school can like make that introduction but the NCAA has different guidelines i don't know it's it's kind of all that, over the place that's definitely true like the NCAA because people will think i mean the NCAA is not a law like there's not there's nothing legal about what the the NCAA does. like there's no force of that it's a it's a voluntary association 
So to be in the NCAA means you agree to abide by certain rules. And those rules can come in conflict with sort of state legislature. And when the what is now called NIL legislation, when it was first moving through, California was one of the first places that it was moving through, where you had state governing bodies, the state legislature, House of Representatives, the state Senate, discussing rules that would have prohibited schools from restricting a college athlete's right to earn money. And basically saying that the schools can't force players the athletes like it's illegal for a school to enforce NCAA rules, which was going to create. And that was what the NCAA kept saying, like, wait, wait, let us figure it out. Wait, let, let us figure it out, because you're about to enter this period of anarchy where the actual state laws that did govern those institutions were going to prevent them from enforcing NCAA laws. So if you're UCLA or Stanford at that point, what you can't. You can't force your students to follow NCAA rules. It would have been illegal for you to do that. So you do have these weird things that come up. Um, but that's that's really funny. It's clear that they've they've moved away. That the students are not going to be punished anymore. Like that's the student athlete. I I, I think we're, I think we're getting to the end of anybody being declared academically ineligible for something that they've taken. But I prepared to see a number of of boosters get in a lot of trouble. I think that'll happen. Did you see this memo for the? congressional hearing scheduled for Wednesday. No. Which I suppose will have happened by the time this this uh, goes live, but um, it cites uh, under under a subsection entitled Endangering Future Olympic Competitiveness. Uh-huh. It says, unlike other countries around the world, the U.S. Olympic programs depend on college programs for their talent pools and training regiments. Many Olympic sports are non-revenue generating, true, which means they are at risk of getting cut due to, and this is the, the section that's getting, getting dunked on on Twitter, due to dwindling athletic department budgets at the hands of NIL deal redistribution of capital in the college ecosystem. Hmm. So what that means is they're, they're seizing on this fear that has long been talked about by administrators and was discussed in that New York Times story about that use North Carolina kind of as the the vehicle for exploring NIL that donor dollars that used to go as contributions to the athletic department that would help them pay for things like expenses in non-revenue sports are being redistributed to these collectives for NIL deals. Yes, which is 100% going to happen. And every is time it, that I that I hear any administrator comment or talk about that, I immediately think that they have a very vested interest in having the athletic department be the one that divvies up those resources because that's how they're employed. Like it, it's, I do think that there's a legitimate conversation and question about what college sports will look like as it becomes more market driven. Like what is that going to mean for what, Olympic sports or what are non-revenue sports? Because I, I do think that it, if you create everything, if, if you create an athletic department that is based on you, you get a, a, a fairer share of what your sport generates, there is going to be more that goes to football and men's basketball and then to a lesser extent women's basketball. Um, 
and you I, I do think you will see some some opportunities lost. I also think that college administrators and certainly the NCAA have a vested interest in sort of enlarge making that feel as if it is a crisis because if there's if they're not in, responsible for distributing as much revenue, they can't justify as as much money as as that currently currently costs that the athletic department does. Yeah, I just don't know that we've seen legitimate data to support that like contributions aren't coming in. Yeah. The way that they were, you know, like I, I don't know. I, it's still, it's still like in its infancy. We'll see kind of as the years progress, like did, is this something departments are going to have to actually deal with? But I don't know. I see, <laughs> I see dwindling athletic department budgets <laughs> and, and that's like, that's uh, people are all over Twitter talking about it too, as, as you do on Twitter. But, um, the, what's dwindling? Yeah, that's like true. The, and do, okay, so does the Big Ten signing a seven-year, seven billion-dollar TV deal like you know, is that is that a counterbalance at all for that <laughs> conference? Like bragging. Okay, so we're in this era of bragging about TV deals, one conference lording over the other conference. Well, our school, our schools are getting thirty-one point seven million dollars, roughly all in from their TV deal, and. Oh, if you guys only get 31.3, you're a loser conference and all this stuff and bragging about TV money and more and more and more and more. But the we're we're to believe the budgets are going to be dwindling <laughs> because a smaller revenue bucket. And at Washington it's not that much smaller because Washington has big donor base that gives a yes. lot of money. So they're relatively equal right now. But like at a Big 10 school that down the road is going to be getting 80 to 100 million dollars per school from their TV contract. Like we're to believe that the impact of NIL is going to, is going to affect your contributions annually in a way that's like materially going to damage the competitiveness of your Olympic sports. That's also going to somehow affect the Olympics themselves (laughs) as if like, is, am I reading that right? Is that what they, yeah. Endangering future Olympic competitiveness. It's saying that the feeder program for the Olympics is NCAA college sports. And if you eliminate if you eliminate a lot of the non-revenue or Olympic sports, our Olympic teams will suffer because you won't have the same feeder programs. So those athletes just won't participate in those sports anymore anywhere. They just they won't will, like they will languish and, and fail to develop because uh, they're not being held close to the bosoms. Of the college athletic department. This was why it was absolutely essential for Stanford to add its fencing program back. (laughs) For the love of God. In general, my observation is that a lot of those, uh, like sailing teams and fencing, they seem to be fairly well funded by the people who participate in them. Yeah. Yeah. Seems seems to be that the the people that are proficient and want to have a vested interest in maintaining those tend to tend to be fairly well off. I don't know. I was in your home state this week. Really? Yeah. What were you doing there? In Portland? Uh no, in uh in the the Bend Redmond area. Oh. Uh my sister-in-law was getting married. Same sister-in-law who designed the logo for this podcast and for onmontlake.com. Woohoo. It was a good time. That's fantastic. Where yeah. was the where was the, the the wedding at? It was at Smith Rock. Have you been to Smith Rock? I have. Yeah. Yeah. It was very cold, very cold, but 
There was I can't a... imagine it being chilly. I always told my parents. My parents, I grew up in Klamath Falls, which is about three hours down Highway 97 from Bend. It's like, you guys have gone a little bit more north. A little bit more north would have been very, very lucrative. Would have worked yeah. out extremely well for you if in the <laughs> early 70s you had decided to not stop once you reached the border and, and decamp at, at Klamath Falls. But um, yeah, Klamath Falls has not experienced the same sort of robust economic growth that I would say that Bend has. Maybe that's your calling. You're going you're gonna to move back there and, and develop the hell out of that place. They do have a lot of algae that I've noticed. Like they're marketing, like there's a lake there. Uh, Klamath Lake, which is really huge, but it's really shallow, and it's it was always known for its algae. Um, and I started marketing it as some sort of health product, like you can get Klamath algae. Wow, what does it do? <laughs> I, I don't know. Smear it on yourself. What does any of the holistic stuff do? Like, I'm sure that there's a market for like in 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 natural health. Um, I I'm sure you could convince people to slather that on themselves. It'll you know make what? you more supple. <laughs> We gotta we gotta sell this stuff on the podcast. Get some climate algae. That's that's the way. <laughs> and just scream at people about it. Well, Take some before we... and after photos. Yeah. What the first stop we need to have is talk to our friend Ian. <laughs> Yo, yeah, yeah. Does he does, is he into into climate algae? No, I don't think he's into climate algae, but if you wanted to sell algae, like I would suggest that you talk to Ian McFarland, IP McFarland. You've got a product, an idea, you're looking to find or expand the number of people who know about it, maybe have a chance to buy it. It's worth a conversation with Ian. And in fact, each and every week, Ian brings up something with us that's worth a conversation. Every home game, I find myself swearing under my breath and complaining to my um, toe-the-line Taiyi Club cousin. That Billy Joe Hobart has never been recognized as a big W Husky legend. His team has. His, the coach who arranged for payment with him has been recognized as both a player and a coach. His head coach has a statue outside. At what point are we going to stop making Billy Joe the scapegoat for the negative that followed the highest highs in program history and celebrate him for being, I would say the best, but certainly the winningest uh, quarterback in Husky history. What do you think, Christian? Billy so, Joe Hobart, NIL pioneer? I've got some. Danny didn't even tell me this was coming, but I've got something ready because I knew Ian would ask about this at some point because <laughs> he's on the, and rightfully so, I think, is on the, the Billy Joe train. So one of Steve Sarkeesian's first acts as head coach, his first season was to bring Billy Joe Hobart, invite him proactively, invite him back to Husky stadium. He was not the Husky legend that day, but he did come back for the game. Uh, Todd Millis, former reporter at the Tacoma news tribune works for scorebook live. Now um, he wrote a, a sidebar about it. Talked to Billy Joe. His lead was, even in a concourse of purple-clad UW football fans Saturday, the presence of Billy Joe Hobart stood out. After spending an hour or so parading through pre-function booths, chatting with UW teammates from the early 1990s, and even doing a brief radio interview, Hobart tried to wiggle through an exit but got stuck behind a crowd of people. And once fans recognized the Puyallup native, they turned their attention to him. Um, and so it's about you know how 
how happy people were to see him and welcome back, good vibes, happy to be back, all these things. Um, yeah, they're especially in this NIL era. I mean, he's you know, people immediately thought of Reggie Bush and Eric Dickerson and the the S whole and Craig James and the SMU era and all this stuff. <laughs> Billy Joe is one where he he could have just taken he could have just taken the fifty grand, you know, and it wouldn't have even needed to be a loan. No, uh, he he could have just day. gotten given it or given because it also I've predicted and I bet a. I've been a little, I guess I would say pleasantly surprised. I haven't seen the kind of moral panic I thought we were going to get over the muscle cars that college athletes are getting. That still might be coming. But yeah, like Billy Joe had a Camaro. He had a Camaro with a kick-ass stereo in the back was part of what he purchased with his $50,000 interest-free loan from the Idaho rocket scientist. Hell yeah. So, hey, that Idaho rocket scientist, just he just need to pick up the phone. And call uh, call the donor collective and say, "Hey, you know which uh, which charity can we can we get Billy Joe to make an appearance for, and <laughs> I'll pay him, and away you go." You know, so yeah, it's I think it's there's no reason to regard Billy Joe Hobart as any kind of heel in Husky football history. I, I don't think anybody has for quite some time. No, I don't. And so yeah, I like I, I the whole Husky legend thing, like sure they want to be like way 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 above board and all these things and like that that incident was against the rules i'm guessing he knew it was against the rules it led to don james resigning and sanctions and all this stuff so like i'm sure certain people have hurt feelings over it still but like one it's been 30 plus years two it was a thing that is essentially legal now Mm -hmm. i mean it was legal back then. It just right. was against NCAA rules, which is always, as we've talked about, an important distinction. So, yeah, I think it's. I think it would be. It would be weird to hold on to like any resentment toward this person who has lived far more of his life since then than he did up till that point. It's also he might be the best quarterback in Husky history. He's the winningest. He's the winningest. And it's definitely across it. And, and there's a great tradition, and it's a good argument, right? Like, it's a good discussion point. But, I mean, he was so freaking good. And he had the linebacker, like, cowboy collar. Like, you got to love was the cowboy Billy collar. Joe. Like, there yeah. was just, oh, I love Billy Joe, man. Like, I, I, I really, I, I really do. Um, We'll say that is... Each week we're going to have It's Worth a Conversation, um, and that is Ian McFarland is the sponsor and our friend uh, friend of the program as well at onmontlake.com. It's worth a conversation with Ian, whether you want to talk about the West Wing or, as I did earlier this week with him, the comic majesty of Norm MacDonald, but it's also worth a conversation about business growth because there's no risk on your end if you want to talk to Ian about that. They'll... Look for solutions that will allow you to grow without the headache of sales and marketing. You've got a product that you're looking to either grow or expand an audience for. Ian and his team will help, even if you don't end up hiring him. IPMcFarland.com. It's with someone like Billy Joe, like there's there's inevitably sort of this moral framing that comes up with any of sports. Like we we do it of good guys and bad guys. I've always said this about baseball steroid era too. 
there's this reluctance to just say what happened. Mm-hmm. If it's if it doesn't fit into that sort of storybook, you can tell your little six year old about the right way to to live. Like if it doesn't, like the fact that Washington got in trouble with the NCAA and then the Pac ten and then how that trickled down, it's part of Washington's history. And I mean, I still have strong feelings about it and whether I think it was fair or not. But it's also it's fun to talk about. Like, I mean, there is like it is a really interesting part of the history and how Don James really felt betrayed. Like he didn't he didn't leave because they got in trouble. He left because he felt undercut by the athletic department that Gerberding and Hedges basically just signed off on what the Pac-12 said and that they didn't wait. They didn't fight and say like, hey, we're going to we're going to fight this to the very end. Like he felt and I mean, did they cheat? They did stuff that broke the rules. Was it that far out of what other programs were doing? I'm not sure about that. And it's kind of the, like, there's always the questions about, like, what happens when you're not, if USC had been doing the same thing, would they have been administered the same degree of sanctions? I I think there's a pretty compelling case when you point to some other things that they might have vacated wins and stuff, but I don't know if they were going to put them on the same level of probation that Washington went on going forward. Does anybody regard Hugh McElhaney, rest in peace, um, as any kind of renegade, rule breaker, you know, NCAA outlaw? No. At all. But he was, and he had no problem. I mean, to the degree that any, like, actual player could be regarded that way, right? Like, I think it's, it's something that the sports media has done over over the years and certainly did with Billy Joe Hobart and a bunch of other players where you put the, you, you, you put the onus on the player for having broken the rule and punish the player rather than you know, all of the other grown adults who should have known a lot better. Um, whether, you know, if, isn't that a weird, cause you're right. And, and I would wonder like, it probably starts like, where does it start? Maybe right around SMU, like early eighties where, there's a window of time, and I would say it runs through Reggie Bush and USC, where investigative journalism on college sports largely revolved around the enforcement of NCAA rules. And, like, look, I'll raise my hand. Like, I've participated in that type of coverage, specifically with Jamal Crawford. But it's also, it's kind of weird because that, it's a framing. You're framing it of, Right is following the NCAA rules. Wrong is breaking them because the guy's going to become ineligible and not be able to play. And then we're going to regard him as as having done something to skirt the rules. It would have been just as valid to investigate like the actual moral underpinning or question of amateurism, the entire basis for the NCAA enforcement. But for a good solid 30 years, that was accepted as a given by by most of the reporters that were covering it. Yeah, um, and I do think like w- once a a certain amount of time has passed, it's just it's just funny, and it's just yeah. like a it's just like a good story. It, but but like only if the guy wasn't caught and punished, like if he's caught and punished, then it, there's there's all these feelings involved, and he's <laughs> you know he's got this black mark on him, and oh That's like true, speak about him in hushed tones, and he's we're not going to honor him as a husky legend or whatever. It takes till two thousand nine to 
bring him just to invite him back to the stadium and have him at a game, even though he was the starting quarterback for your best team ever. And you got all these happy memories about him on the field that year, right? Like that was okay. But you know, but if it's Hugh McElhaney, you know, oh, it was the fifties and yeah. Georgie Torrance and you know, he got him a job at the racetrack and that, which was some of that stuff was legal. That's the other thing. Like there was stuff that was allowed back then that, that those guys did that, that isn't allowed now. But yeah, I just, it's like when, when Hugh McElhaney in his eighties sits down with Dan Raley at his house in Las Vegas and just lays out all the ways that you broke the rules to pay him. And hell, what do I care? I'm old and I'm done with football and you know it's it's ancient history fits it's fine i'll I'll say whatever then it's like fun and entertaining it's like why just because most of the people hearing this have no concept of the 1950s so it's 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 like this separate so far gone time that well there's no reason to be upset about it it's it's just a good story now there is there's something though to what you said of not getting caught in trouble for it like when you get caught and get in trouble for it there is sort of a, a a mark because objectively you would say that like getting caught doesn't make it more right or more wrong, right? Like if you did it, whether or not you got away from it, got away with it, it's the exact same sort of, we should feel the same about it, but we don't. But if Billy Joe Hobart, if, if Washington had not gone on probation after that, I, I'm convinced that none of like that everything would be easier in terms of Billy Joe Hobart's acceptance. Not, not in the mind of fans, because I think that's there, but around the program. But when you get in trouble for it, like then it becomes something much more different because then you do have people that are mad about it. You do it's have a- fans that, that, that get upset or part of their, your alumni base gets upset about it. Or the administration worries about you thumbing. Like, will that look like we're thumbing our nose at the NCAA? It's a good point because, like, even if that all had been public and investigated and it was a thing, but the NCAA and the Pac-10 just concluded, eh, we don't have enough evidence or, eh, we just don't think it's that big of a deal. And there's no punishment, even though everyone knows about it. I think even then it would be different. Yeah. It, you know, Don James still would be the coach in 1993 and there's no probation and no jokes about, you know, about the, the stain on the program and all these things. So yeah, it's to, to Ian's question. I, I, I agree. Um, I think it would be appropriate to, uh, for him to be the, the Husky legend. Do you think Jerry Tarkanian is the most ethical and morally sound approach to the NCAA because he just unambiguously and relentlessly hated him to the point where he sued him? <laughs> I mean, I uh, I very much enjoyed Jerry Tarkanian and his I, approach toward the NCAA. I love Tark. It's, it's hard to, like, put anybody in that position on a pedestal because it's ultimately self-serving and self-interested. So self-serving. Like, yeah, man, you, you wanted the best players – However, by any means necessary to win as many basketball games as you could, and, and like I, I, I think that's fine. But 
you know, I, it's not like he was doing it for some like, well, I'd like to follow the rules, but I think the right thing to do is to thumb my <laughs> nose at the NCAA. So I'm going to break, even though it's going to pain me to do it, I'm going to break all these rules and we're going to get all these great players and win all these games. And it's not because I enjoy winning and want to win. It's because I, I am taking a moral stance against this governing body. It was so I do funny. love Jerry Tarkanian, though. And then when he came back at Fresno State after Vegas ended and you saw it for just a glimpse where you're like, yeah, Tark's program's not going to work in a modern media environment. <laughs> like All of a sudden you had, you had two of their players. Like they got into a fight, a fight with another guy involving samurai swords. Not, <laughs> not what you want. No, Evandra Jones and Kenny Bruner were the two. And I, Bruner had, Bruner had left Georgetown. And Evandra Jones had been a real high-profile freshman at USC, and they'd both ended up there. And yeah, I think they got in trouble. I, Malt Liquor was involved in Samurai Swords. I remember that very, very clearly. If you could pick any two things to never be in concert with one another, those, those would be high on the list. I, I don't know, Christian. Was that, was that I, in do Vegas? We, do we have? No, it was in Fresno. It was in Fresno. Yeah. Do do we have the Wu Tang Clan without those two things? I mean, granted, the Rizzo was much more into embalming fluid and other types of insane drugs, but yeah, uh, yeah I, I I feel like samurai swords and 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 malt liquor were somewhat essential to the Wu Tang. Fatal flying guillotine chops off your <laughs> head, tiger style, tiger style. <laughs> uh, Spring practice. Uh... Resumed, I should say resumed. Yeah, T- tomorrow for us. Yesterday for you listening. Uh, it probably went okay. I wrote about it. <laughs> you you need to do the ambiguous tease now. Like for all of my uh, for all of the up to the day up to the minute uh, news and availability, you need to check on montlake.com where you can get your subscription if you haven't already. That's right. You can sign up for free, but to read everything, you will need a paid subscription, $65 a year or $8 a month. Or if you want to be like Ian McFarland, be a friend of the program, $150 a year. That includes a monthly Zoom call with me and all of our friends of the program. I need to, uh, we're targeting early next week for that. I need to, uh, need to send out an email to all our, all our friends of the program, our burgeoning group of friends of the program. Is there a limit on how many people can be on a Zoom call? I'm going to find out. Um, <laughs> if so, I'll cut it into, I'll cut it into two, but uh, I'm going to try one. I mean, I don't know if you, maybe they'll make me buy like a business account or something. Be like, this guy wants 110 some people on his Zoom. What? Was he running a startup? What do they got? <laughs> they got micro brew in the break room. What's going on here? Playing foosball at work. They're not doing that anymore at these startups. None of that, man. They're tightening the belt all around, all around this fine country. Yeah. No, well, no, no, no. They're not tightening the belt. They're streamlining headcount. In the in in the in the face of um, changing economic headwinds, they want to circle back and really look at which space they 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 want to invest in. Oh, growth, they're evaluating many different spaces. Yeah, yeah. including outer space. <laughs> yeah, Jeff Bezos. Do you do you uh, watch or listen to Bo Burnham at all? The comedian? No. Should I? He's, yeah, you should. Uh, he's different. Um, he's one of my favorites. His most recent special on Netflix was uh, he recorded and produced the entire thing himself in his apartment during like COVID shutdowns. Yeah. 
and he has a couple songs about Jeffrey Bezos that are like very short and like very simple, but but also kind of genius at the same time. Um, that that it always reminds me of that. I here's my question. So there's been all this money that's been generated in Seattle, like around the tech industry, right? Like Bezos, but before that, Bill Gates. I mean, there's all of this, all of this different wealth that's come out of there. And despite all of that, we can't get one of these nerds to decide to buy a team and then just like, I'm going to spend whatever it takes. And I guess you could say that Paul Allen did it, but he did it in the one sport where unrestrained spending actually isn't, it's the most difficult in and he wouldn't pay for the stadium either. Right. And he, he, he very savvily decided, uh, very, with, with great savvy, decided to have a statewide election where he wouldn't have to pay for the whole stadium. But, I mean, really, like, Bezos wants to go to outer space. Like, why couldn't he just decide he wants to have a baseball team that makes the Yankees look like a small market? Team? Like, just go and just drop his wallet on somebody. Like, why? We have to deal with sort of the rising costs of living like spiking property values, like all these different things that's happened because of the way that these guys have come in and changed the sort of the economic, like the way our city works. And the, the, one, the one guy that bought, like we got the coffee dope who then decided like his feelings were hurt because he might have to pay for his own arena. So he sold the team to people from Oklahoma City. I feel like we're doing it wrong. Like they're, if we're going to pay for the costs of all of the, of all of the, 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 the benefits that come with having a, a more affluent populace. Like, we should get the benefits of having one of these nerds own a team, and they just don't care how much money they spend on it. I get this question about UW from time to time. Like, why, with all, you, like, with all the tech money, and with so many billionaires with companies headquartered in Seattle, why can't one of them just write a, you know, a, a $50 million check to UW every year because they won't miss it or anything. Yeah. And like I, you mentioned Bezos wanting to go to space and like Bill Gates wants to, that's, I think that the people who give a ton of money to college athletics are like really, really, they're really big on the idea of just like having influence over their favorite team. And they care. They, they've decided that they care a lot about this and they want to be front and center and involved in it. And like, if you don't have that pride, and that like in in your alma mater or the local school or like if that's not a huge interest of yours that's like why in the world would i spend any amount of like what university of washington athletics like i built a spaceship <laughs> like i'm i'm turning you know i'm i'm turning human waste into like drinkable like drinking water like and you want like for what nil like what you need a new locker room for a football team like I, I think that's unless you're really into the sport and like really into like being part of it and like you know basically buying access to coaches and administrators and stuff like if you're if you're a billionaire on that level and there's no like there's no personal connection at all to like you know some people went to UW and grow up and, and make a ton of money and you know want to give back and want to want to be part of like funding scholarships for athletes and stuff. And um, I think people like Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, like the way that they, their, their, their hobbies do not align with that sort of, that sort of giving. I don't think I want, I want one of our billionaires to have Phil Knight's moral compass. 
Yeah, that's I mean that, that, that's, that's what, what I want, Christian. For. And yeah. I don't feel like it's too much to ask for. Like Bill Gates, fine. He wants to change the the way the world works and prevent future pandemics. And I'll even give you Bezos. He wants to go to outer space. I think that's ridiculous, but whatever. But like, I'm just saying there should be one of them that has his priorities completely out of whack to where he just wants to kill Oregon. That's all I'm asking for. There's like the thing is there's probably somebody out there who if they came into a billion dollars that would be a they would absolutely prioritize that. What we need to do is get Softy to get a really good idea, put him together with Ian so he can rapidly grow his sales opportunities. Because if Softy was super rich, I believe that Softy would he'd probably spend it on lightsabers and and some sort of Death Star, like a football Death Star to destroy Oregon. Yeah, it would be it would literally resemble like the the actual Death Star. It would be built to Death Star specs without the without the little hatch though. It that would, would be a, the key. It'd have a big W on the side. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it would have a it would have a Kenny Wheaton sized port that would destroy the whole thing. <laughs> no. Sorry. Uh <laughs> uh should we wrap it? I think so. Yeah. Check out onmontlake.com so you can get all the updates on what's happening at spring practice. Check out the dang apostrophe so you can you can find out whether Danny's jealousy of St. John's grows or or diminishes throughout <laughs> this transfer portal season. And we will talk to you next week.